<clears throat> yeah, and we will be going into Second Samuel because First Samuel kind of like ends everything mid-story, and we've been studying like the whole the life of David here and the work that God is doing in David's life to prepare him for what God wants to call him into, and to sort of like then just dump that mid-story is like ah, we missed it. We missed the culmination of what's happening and what God is doing. So we're going to continue to work our way through it. So if you want, that's all to say, hey, listen, you're encouraged to read ahead. You're not spoiling anything. It's all good. Read ahead. You'll just be better equipped. <clears throat> Father, speak to our hearts, Lord, about this passage, Father. We want to listen uh, with obedient ears, obedient hearts, Lord. We want... Um, just your word, Lord, to hit good soil in and around our hearts, Father. And Father, we just prepare ourselves, Lord, to just hear from you, to have the Holy Spirit just grab the truth and minister it to our minds and to our hearts. And Father, we don't desire just to grow in knowledge. We want to grow in transformation and in relationship to you. You're doing a transformational work in our lives to become the love that has saved us. And that's what we want to be, Lord. That's where we want to go. And so I thank you that you're doing a good work, Lord. May we be inspired and encouraged by your good heart and by your perfect ways. Bless our time, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All righty, 1 Samuel 26. It's actually going to sound like a repeat from 1 Samuel 24, but I promise you it's not, even though it's going to sound very similar. And we had just finished up, if you remember, this whole interaction with conflict and Nabal, right? And David and Abigail. It's pretty, pretty crazy dynamic stuff. And um, if you missed it, you got to listen online to at least catch part of that story. And it's really interesting to see how David's been doing so well. And then he, he just went really bad for a while. But was able to turn it back around again. Um, so you got to listen to that. And now the story sort of gets back to the main characters. The main focus point, which was David and Saul. Those are the focus, the focal points. Because God is doing a new thing in Israel. And he's doing it with a new leader. He had intended to do a really good work with Saul. As long as Saul was obedient and cooperated and partnered with what God wanted to do. The problem with Saul is he found room in his heart and in his life to go most of the way and not follow through in obedience all the way. That was really the big problem with Saul. Like He would do a lot or some of what God called him to do. But he would never actually follow through all the way, the way God asked him to do it. And in a leadership position like that, to lead a nation, their first ever king, there really wasn't any room for that. And it's kind of sad that he thought that his relationship with God um, could be overtaken with complacency, procrastination, and justifications. And that's sad when we get to that point, right? Like, it's not like Saul is the only person that has ever dealt with that. We've all, to some degree, dealt with that. The difference is, there's some people that maybe have struggled with that, kind of gone back and forth with it. And then some people have then said, if they're going, they come back around and like, ah, they keep, they engage in the fight, they stay in the fight. 
They try and position themselves in the right place. And then they start to see some victory in it. And then there's like others that sort of procrastinate. They're really complacent. They're just sort of... It's a lot of like, you know, a negotiation or a bargain with God, their relationship. And maybe if you do that, and I don't know if you really do it here, and so I, you know, I don't... And what happens is you never really get to know the heart of God or never really experience who He really is. It's never personal. It really can just then become religious, theological talking points that have no substance. And... As we're looking at David and looking at his life, um, one of the things that we're seeing and that we're realizing is that an obedient heart, obedient, I'm not saying perfect. Everybody here knows, and we've been reading, David has not been perfect, right? He made that really clear like last week and the week before. He's been far from perfect, but he has been obedient. The position of his heart has been hungry towards God, wanting what God wants the way God wants it. And so, when we're in that position, and we have this obedience in heart, the desired effect is that there's an obedient heart that carries to obedient actions, and then from there, we actually get to experience the promises of God. And it's important, it kind of goes that way, like in domino succession. If you have just an obedient heart, you can have all the best intentions in the world, but you never actually get anything done. And good intentions don't really help us in our relationship with God, and we won't really gain much traction or see a lot of victory. Mentally, we might like agree with a lot of things, but we won't experience much of the nature of God that we were called to experience, a life and a life abundant. Do you with me? So an obedient heart is part of the process, and typically, if we've been fighting with the Lord for a while and just... There's just been this struggle there. It takes some time to even just get that obedient sort of willing heart. Like, okay, Lord, I, yes, I will follow you. Just like I said in the beginning, but I fought you for a while, but I will follow you. Wholeheartedly just give myself to you. Just be a disciple. Follow after. And when you get that sort of obedient heart, then it really needs to carry through like actions that reflect that. Because everybody in here knows, like you guys, no one in here likes it if you just get lip service from somebody with no actions. That's the most frustrating thing in the world, right? You have like a good friend or a spouse or somebody close to you or around you and they're like, oh yeah, I'll do this for you here. I'll be for you there. I love you over here. They just say all this stuff that just sounds so great. It's the world of a politician. Say all these things that just sound so great. But how often do they really deliver, especially if their keister is around the line? Not a whole lot, which is unfortunate. But that's the place like where we're called, that's called integrity. Right? You practice what you preach. So there's this element of this obedient heart, but then it needs to carry through to obedient actions, and here's the awesome payoff that we get. The amazing payoff that we get is we then get to experience firsthand, personally, the goodness and the faithfulness of who God is. Because up until that point, it's just something we mentally like want to agree to, know that we should. Um, we just, it's just mental. And really, like, it needs to be personal, with a personal history. 
with our Father. It's really difficult to say our Father who art in heaven if he's not really a father. It's hard to do that. And it's really difficult to try and get others saved or evangelize or go down the Romans road or whatever kind of Christianese you want to say. It's really difficult to do those things if our personal hearts are not just closely attached to his and just have impacted him and we just encountered him and it's just like, man, he's just so good. He's just so good. And I just want to share with you just somehow let me just just be around my life so you can just get some of the overflow of goodness of love of what what he's done in me just that's the way you want to impact people it's not a desperate need to get them to think the way that we think it's a desperate need to have them encounter the love that we continue to live in and be transformed by and you just want to bless them with because god has created them in the same image and we're not better than they are Do you understand like this difference of what God wants to call us to? And time and time again, that difference of personal experience of the goodness of God has been shown through David's life because of his obedience, and we see how God continues to honor and bless him. And so it should encourage us and challenge us probably, but definitely encourage us. So let's take a look at this. Um, we're going to pull a couple of things out and uh, do some communion and sing together. But let's look at it. So, the rest of it won't go that long, I promise. Unless you, re- unless you really wanted to, we could do that. Like, that's cool. The Ziphites. Remember the Ziphites? Anybody remember the Ziphites? Do you remember a couple chapters ago? There are brown nosers. If you remember a couple of chapters ago, right, they told on. They ratted David out. And to be fair, they might not just be brown nosers. I mean, Saul had been known for killing an entire town that harbored David and his men. So maybe not total brown nose, maybe also a little bit of just self-protection for themselves and the people they love. Okay, so maybe it took a little bit of an unfair shot. But this is the second time we're seeing that they're volunteering David in his position and where he is. So the Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hekelah, which faces Jeshimon? So in other words, hey, David's over here now. You want him. Here's where he's at. Verse 2, So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search there for David. So again, Saul comes out with 3,000 like he did last time. When he comes after David, he comes with everybody. Which is, and this is all very interesting. Because a couple chapters ago, like we talked about, 1 Samuel 24, if you remember, same thing happened. Hey, David's here. So I was like, okay, we're going to go get him. He gets another 3,000. They roll out there. And then at the end of it, Saul finds out David spared his life. He could have killed him. Found him in a cave. Saul's trying to go to the bathroom. Delivered right there, and David's like, I'm not, this is not my time to kill him, this is my time to spare him, but to let him know that God is in control of this, and he will justify and vindicate me. And then Saul, at the end of that, he goes, oh my, I'm so sorry, you're better than me, what have I done? And he's really apologetic, and he's really sad, he cries about it. But obviously he's not very repentful, because he goes back and just does it again. And so like, we're in the same scenario. 
<clears throat> so he's got 3,000, verse 3. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hakalah facing Jeshimon, but David stayed in the desert. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. So David's there. He sends out some scouts, some spies, say, hey, is he really here? He's really here. Verse 5. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Ner, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. David then asked two guys. He asked Ahimelech and Abishai, Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? So this is already different. Remember last time they were hiding in the back of a cave and just hoping they don't get found? This is kind of interesting. Now David's kind of like being a little, uh, I don't know, proactive. So he wanted to like kind of engage in this a little bit. So he's like, I'm going down there. And he talks to the guys, like, hey, who wants to come with me? So I'll go with you, said Abishai. So Ahimelech decided not to. Abishai goes with him. Verse 7. So David and Abishai went to the army by night. And there was Saul, lying asleep inside the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, this should sound familiar. Today, God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of my spear. I won't strike him twice. That that sound familiar at least a little bit? Do you remember last time he was in the cave? His guy said, hey, listen, God has delivered you into his hand. Now's the time to do it. Same thing. Verse 9, but David said to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? That should sound familiar too. Wasn't that the response last time? They saw an opportunity to capitalize on taking over their enemy. But as far as David is concerned, it's not his enemy. It's the Lord's anointed who happens to be hunting him, but in his heart, it's just not his enemy. Isn't that interesting? Right, for Abishai and the rest of the crew, it's like, well, listen, like, you have an enemy, you take them out. And David's like, well, it's not just quite that simple. The Lord has anointed him, and the Lord hasn't called me to take him out. That's the Lord's. I just have to honor him the best that I can in the middle of whatever's happening here. God has a greater story. He has a covenantal relationship with his people right now. He's anointed this man to lead. If God's going to remove him, God remove him. And he's not going to do it using me. I just know that. So I'm going to honor this man and honor the way God has set it up, even though he's violating every single part of it. Most of us don't take a ton of joy in honoring certain situations and covenants and relationships and circumstances that God has ordained And the other party, especially in marriage, the other party is violating almost every aspect of that. In fact, most times people are like, well, that's my way out. That's my sign. And you'll find, as you read through the Bible, it's like, man, you know, I'm not quite sure you're seeing the sign the right way. There's a different way to interpret situations. They interpreted the situation as like, oh, this is definitely God's will. Take them out. How much easier does it get? He laid him right here again for you twice. David's like, nah, maybe I got it twice, but it's not my thing. And you know what made it, I think, a little bit easier for him? It doesn't say it, and I'm kind of speculating a little bit, and I understand that. But the first time, maybe it was a little more tempting, but it's kind of cool how he got victory the first time. And the second time, I'm venturing. 
he was maybe tempted a little bit, but because he had victory the first time around, it's like, man, I'm not giving into that this time. That tried to get me last time. Right? It's good to have victory over temptations. Helps you a lot with the future ones. So, verse 10. As surely as the Lord lives, he said the Lord himself will strike him. Either his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. A.K.A., listen, God's going to take care of this. He didn't tell me I'm supposed to take care of it. God will do it. It's not going to happen right now. This is not the moment. It might look like it, but it's not the moment. What wisdom. What wisdom, right? Looks like the moment. Nah, it's just not. I just, how do you know? I don't know. I just know. God told me it's just not the moment. But everything's perfect. It's just not. It's just not. It's just not the time. It's great wisdom, isn't it? It's inspiring to me. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. That's interesting. We haven't seen that before, right? So God specifically just had them in this really deep sleep. So, Because I always wonder, when you read the first part and you don't read the rest yet, like you read the first part and he's like, David and Abishai just walk in on him and they're all sleeping. I'm like, what's, who's guarding that? Like, I'm, How does that work? They got 3,000 people and they just like, shh. You know, like, isn't somebody on night duty? Like, I don't understand that. You know what I mean? Like, that's like, that's weird. Like, who does that? Well, it kind of gives us a clue here. The Lord put him into a deep sleep. It's really interesting to me. Did David know that was going to happen? You know, like, how did... It's all very interesting, right? Verse 13. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the hill some distance away. There was a wide space between them. He called out to the army and to Abner, son of Ner, aren't you going to answer me, Abner? So David didn't reveal who he was. He just starts talking to Abner. Abner replied, who are you who calls to the king? So David doesn't reveal who he is. He's calling to the guy that was like in charge of protecting the king. Verse 15, David said, and he didn't say he was David, he just starts talking. You're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard your lord the king? Someone came to destroy your lord the king. What you have done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men deserve to die because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and water jug that were near his head? So he's laying it on pretty thick right here. Abner, what's going on with you? What happened over there? Obviously you can't be entrusted with the king's safety. Someone just came in there. Verse 17, Saul recognizes David's voice and he says, Is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, Isn't that just like, kind of want to make you throw up a little bit? David, my son. Really now? David replied, Yes, it is, my lord, the king. Notice he didn't call him father, right? Because technically he is his father-in-law. But that thing has just been severed. So much so that the wife, his daughter, that he gave to David, here to give to another man. I mean, he just really just, man, doing wrong things to David. 
Verse 18, and he added, why is my Lord pursuing his servant? Like, why are you coming after me? What have I done and what wrong am I guilty of? Now let my Lord the King listen to his servant's words. If the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. So in other words, if God has put something you know, in your heart towards me that's justified and God has put it there, let me make an offering. Let me apologize. Let's try and rectify this thing. If, however, men have done it, may they be cursed before the Lord. Like, listen, if God didn't do it, if some people convinced you that you should come after me, then let's deal with that. The reality is, neither of those situations happened, right? This is something that has happened within Saul. Jealousy that has rose up. A hatred that has rose up. Completely ignoring what God told him. God told him, he said, listen, I'm taking the kingdom from your hand. I'm passing on to the next person. And Saul knew it the whole time, and Saul fought it the whole way. He knew what God's plan was. God's plan didn't involve him being the man. And so he fought it every step of the way. That's sad, right? And sometimes we learn something about that in life. Like, we know kind of like what God wants us to do, how he wants us to, like, behave, some things he's just calling us to do, and we just fight him tooth and nail every step of the way. Sometimes we just do that stuff. And you can tell we're really growing in our relationship with the Lord and we're maturing when there tends to be a lot less fight back. So when he calls us to do something and we actually respond the right way and that gap gets smaller and smaller and smaller, you can tell that we're growing, right? Says they have now driven me from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, go serve other gods. Verse 20. Now do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. So he's like, man, you are wasting your time. You're coming after me. Like, I'm not even, what do I have? I've got 400 to 600 guys. We're living in caves and deserts. I don't have significant power. I just almost got ripped off by this guy, you know, that I was doing bodyguard duty for. Like, I don't have influence. Like, what are you doing? You have the whole kingdom. Verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have erred greatly. Here is the king's spear. I, I like how David almost didn't even really acknowledge that. Here is the king's spear. Let one of your young men come over and get it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, my son of David. You will do great things and surely triumph. So David went on his way, and Saul returned home. So it sounds pretty familiar, right? A little... Different nuances. But nonetheless, you get the same idea and story of Saul probably feeling bad about a situation in 1 Samuel 24, regretting it, crying about it, going right back to it, doing the same thing. David responds another honorable way. And David's response is a little bit interesting this time around to where he actually goes out, kind of gets stuff, then leaves, 
And then he says some interesting things at the end. He says, the Lord, verse 23, the Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord delivered you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. David knew something about God's heart that we didn't hear about last time. He said, not only am I not supposed to touch the Lord's anointed, it's also true that I'm trying to spare your life and show mercy to you. Let God fight the battles he's going to fight, not interrupt that. And if I show you an incredible amount of mercy and grace and generosity, God's going to reflect that and bring that back into my own life. Because I'm giving it back to you. And so like David knew something about God's heart and about his character, which is very interesting. I want to share about that and then we're going to finish up. Um, here's the interesting thing that I like about this that I think a takeaway might be helpful. What does all this even mean? Um, I think one thing that we could take away about what it means is God is in control no matter how determined someone is to fight his plan. God is in control no matter how determined someone may be to try and foil that plan. To me, that's very encouraging. Because no matter how much evil, no no matter how much manipulation, strategizing, trying to set situations up, trying to gossip about people, trying to bring people down, trying to just create a really bad situation, God is still in control. And he can still handle and use all of that to work for his good and for his plan and for his purposes. And the thing that I like about that is that God remained in control because David did not choose to take the control out of God's hands. He was not interested at all in sabotaging what God wanted to do. Which I love that. Because so often that's like really the battle for us. It's just control issues. That's the battle. I want to be in control of my life and how I feel and the way things play out and what happens and the people I'm around. And it's just all of these things. We want to just control. And we feel like we're getting slighted or it's getting invaded or it's being threatened. Typically, we don't say, Lord, this is your situation. I'm going to pray for that person. I'm going to cover them. I'm going to love on them. And Father, you just do what you need to do. But I'm going to play my part and I'm going to be loved in this situation the way you've called me to be. Because retaliation is not mine. Repayback's not mine. That's yours. Mine is to love well and love really well. To not harbor things. To not come after people. To not try and make quick moves to like evade and talk bad about it. You understand what I'm saying? Typically, these are things that like, we try to do. So somebody hurts us and something, we get threatened in some way. Like We try to make moves. And I love David's response. I was just like, man, let the Lord handle this stuff. Let him bring the justice where the justice needs to be. So, in the New Testament, right, in the New Testament, it talks about having enemies. And it talks about having difficulty with people and with situations. Josh, you got that slide with, with the verse? On the first one there is like Matthew 7, 
We'll look at that one. Um, it says, so whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. I think that is so profound. I think that's just amazingly wise and awesome. If I'd like to be treated a certain way, and be handled a certain way, if I want Julie to treat me a certain way, if I want my boss to treat me a certain way, Jesus is saying, hey, listen, don't go tell them constantly how you want to be treated. Don't go tell them constantly how you want to be treated. What would be best for you? doesn't mean you shouldn't ever. It means that it shouldn't be the dominant narrative of your relationship, though. Here's what should be the dominant narrative. Kingdom. Kingdom way. Whatever you wish others would do, you do to them. So in other words, if we really like a certain way for people to treat us and we're not getting that, there's still room to bring that up and to like address that. More times than not, we're known for going right to that really fast, right away. I don't like this. I need to tell them. They need to know. I've told them before. I don't understand. And Jesus is saying, listen, the kingdom way, the kingdom way is we go after the heart first. Because before you have that conversation, something needs to happen in here so that conversation can go well. And it can go in the right place. And it won't be dominated by fleshly desires and impulses. So there's a guard that God has set up lovingly and wisely in place. He says, listen, model the behavior. Instead of telling them about it all the time, why don't you just model it? Just model it. Become it to them. You want to see a lot of forgiveness happen? You better be super forgiving and extend way above what you think you got to do. Remember the whole 70 times 7? Yeah, that's like a lifestyle. You don't want other people to talk bad about you? Man, don't go run into the next person about how, whatever somebody else is doing. Right? There's a whole other way that Jesus wants us to be and wants us to act that we're called to. We're built to do it. Jesus wouldn't tell us to do it if he wouldn't equip us to and if we weren't built to do it. We're built to live this way. But life has just taught us another way to self-preserve and protect ourselves and just and respond in fleshy ways. And she's saying, that's not the way we do it. Like, listen, model what you'd like to have happen to you. Go model it. Because it's a much better conversation to have with somebody when you say, hey, listen, like, I've really struggled for like a little while now about kind of some way things that have been happening. And I just, I don't know, you know, and I've just been praying through it. And um, in these particular areas, when I've done, like when I've showed you this, and if I extended myself this way, and if I did this in this situation, I'm trying to like model and show you like how I'd like to maybe just get something back from you. And that conversation is going to look really different, you know, with a coworker, with a boss, with a spouse. But the general idea is that we're modeling what we'd like to see done to us, how we'd like to be, have ourselves be treated. Do you see where the ownership lies? It's not all their fault, and we're entitled to like, good responses from other people. We're not entitled to anything. 
we're really entitled to live into the calling, into the promises upon our lives. And one way that we do that is not by telling everybody something all the time about what we want. It's by modeling what we'd like to see happen. So it's a very different way and very wise. And I think David shows some of that. He models part of what God's heart is towards his people and the way he operates. Josh, on on the next slide there. Jesus sheds a little more light into this idea about enemies. Here's the interesting word about this word, enemies. The Greek word there, it means anybody who is uh, hostile um, or opposing um, views. Hostile or opposing. That's like, that's what the Greek word, when you tra- I think it's like erythro or something like that. That's the way when you translate it, that's the way it comes out. So most people know enemies and it's like, you know, something that, that hates me or wants to destroy me or kill me. And most of the time we don't walk around people that want to do that, although in this day and age it's reality, right? There definitely aren't people that walk around and do that. But most times we don't really know who those people are. Most of the time we're around people in situations that are hostile towards us or they have opposing viewpoints. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He says, but I say to you, love those who oppose you, who are difficult and hostile, and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father that is in heaven. So the prescription for New Testament living, loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you. So that, that's a crazy last sentence. So that you may be sons of your Father as in heaven. Why does he say that? Well, that's because that's the way heaven operates. If we're trying to live, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Well, that's like what they do in heaven. And Jesus had modeled that and showed that when he was here on this earth. And that's very much, much of our calling. So those that are just hostile and difficult to deal with, and those that are around us, I really hope and pray that it's in our heart of hearts to be like in prayer about those people and about that situation. Like we just spend a lot of time there first. I mean, that's what we're called to do. That's the whole obedient heart. That's like the entire deal. That's what David modeled for us. And Jesus called us to do it. It's just so important. And then we got the last one. Josh, what's the last one? But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. And it's really just the same essence, right? And when we go about doing this stuff, it's really going to change how we see other people. And that's like the work that God wants to do in our hearts and in our lives. It's going to change so much about how we interact with others in the work that God wants to do. And at the end of the day, God is using difficult people, difficult people, difficult situations to do a transformative work inside us and around us. And so whether it's the devil or the enemy that's at play and at work, it's like whatever might be there, but there's a God who is in control who has a greater purpose at hand, no matter who's determining to bring downfall, if we trust God and we're faithful, 
in obedience with what Jesus is calling us to do, we're going to experience some amazing and tremendous fruit. And our relationships with other people and those around us are going to be radically changed. And honestly, (laughs) most of the work is going to happen in our own hearts. Because we're just going to move from a place of, you know what, my position in life is to really bless you and just encourage you and put you in a place where you're just encouraged more by who God is. Instead of trying to get a certain attitude or a certain kind of way for you to treat me. It's a very different way of living. Um, I wrote down this. Um, how do you pray for your enemies? Like, how do you do that? How does that work? How do you pray for those that oppose you and you have strong feelings about it and it's difficult? And it's like kind of consuming and it's just like, ah! How do you do that? Um, I was reading through a bunch of stuff this week and, and one of these things jumped out to me and I was like, there's the answer right there. The way that you pray for your enemies and that oppose you and it's really difficult, you pray for them and I, you pray for them exactly the same way you pray for yourself. That's how we're called to pray for them. We're called to pray for them the way we pray for ourselves. Like we pray like, um, bless you, yes. We pray for things in our life that God will provide for us, that he keep us safe, that he watch over us. That he'd see us grow and influence. That, he'd see, that we'd be successful. That our kids would be protected. That our jobs would go well, right? These are things that we pray for ourselves. And Jesus is saying, hey, listen. That person, the situation, whoever they are, do the same thing. That's how you pray for them. That's how you pray for them. And also, we don't know if they're believers or not, right? And also, we pray for just your eternal salvation. And God, if they don't know you, God, they don't know you. I pray that they would know you. Put Christians around them somehow. May the love and truth of who you are shine through in some way. And that's the place where God wants us to be when we just get around difficult situations, difficult people. Man, we just go to the prayer closet. We just get praying. And we don't just like isolate ourselves and give people bad attitudes and be like, I can't deal with you right now. I'm praying for you. You know, like that's not... That's not it. It's like we're doing this. Right? It's like we remove ourselves and we're trying to like position ourselves in a good way to when that name or that person or situation comes up, like we're not in some bad place. So much of David's success was rooted in his heart. And we get to read and we get to see through Nabal, through Saul, and David is even where he's called to be, and through other situations that because of David's faithfulness and obedience to what God has called him to, he is able to experience God's goodness and truthfulness and his promises firsthand. And the thing that the enemy, I don't like to talk about him a lot because I don't want to draw attention to him, but one thing that he does not, that he does not really, I don't think, worry himself too much about, is if he squeezes us and pressures us enough, a lot of times we just freak out and we do just a lot of things we really regret. But the other side is, if we can respond, not in a perfect way, but in a way that's just humble, that's transparent, where we pour our hearts out, we get to experience God in an amazing way and see tremendous breakthrough. And many times our greatest challenges will be our most significant blessings. 
And that's the part the enemy doesn't, I don't think, really... He doesn't concern himself, I don't think, with too much. Because most times he can send us into a tizzy over all kinds of stuff. And really, God wants us to have our hearts secured in a place that's so much different. I can tell you, since we planted this church, um, and just being around other pastors um, the past couple of months, it has just uh, this idea of just interpersonal relationships in the body has just been, not even just here, in other places, has just come up a lot. And uh, the Lord just has some really good work he wants to do. It's not spanking time. It's like he has a good work that he's doing. He's saying, hey, listen, I'm trying to draw my people together in unity and in oneness. And what has to happen is I just have to just move pieces around and change things and help people and position them. And so that's what we should be encouraged about, that God is just doing a good work there. And I can also tell you that, man, I would say in the last 10 years, as far as the body of Christ goes, like just in this state alone in Connecticut, I have never seen to this day, I've never seen so many pastors and so many churches be across denominational lines, across personal opinions and strong beliefs, trying to work together for the common good for the bride. It is amazing and so good. I've never, ever seen it like this. It's incredible. And it's just a really beautiful thing. And we have those people, we have those situations, and they're not little things. They can be problematic. So don't just gloss past them. Spend time with them. Let God do the work that needs to be done. All right? Okay. Let's do some communion together. Can we have uh, some people pass this stuff out? One of the things that I love is... Uh,